This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com slash science to try Audible free for 30 days, go to www.audibletrial.com slash science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, how to keep your biohacking legal. And semaphore music. But first up, here's the news. (laughs) 3D printed ice cream. Three students at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology have put together a soft-serve ice cream machine and a 3D printer to allow people to make ice cream in any shape they can imagine. Their motivation is to excite children to the possibilities of science and technology. They use small blasts of liquid nitrogen to freeze the ice cream in place as it's squeezed out of the printer's nozzle. The instant freezing allows them to build up a shape, layer by layer, just like the layers of plastic are built up in a traditional 3D printer. The whole device sits inside an upright freezer so that the ice cream holds its shape. The ice cream printer can print a shape in 15 minutes. The trade-off is to make this time short enough for people to wait in an ice cream shop for their chosen design to be printed, while still allowing enough time for an interesting design. A YouTube video shows them printing a star-shaped ice cream. From soft serve to popsicle ice blocks, the Netherlands company Melt Ice Pops is using computer-controlled CNC cutting machines instead of 3D printers to create ice creams on a stick to any design. Their ice pop generator is planned for use at carnivals and events. The designers expect people to get themselves 3D scanned while they're waiting in the queue and then have an ice block version of their head printed out for them to lick on a stick. Or it could be your own design, or someone else's face, that you really, really like. The computer-controlled cutting machine sculpts the design out of a pre-made ice block or ice cream bar. The CNC machine is designed in a glass freezer, so people can watch the shapes being cut. Melt Ice Pops raised its seed money in a Dutch crowdfunding site, Voor de Kunst, which means for the art in English. I'll embed a video of the ice pop generator sculpting ice block faces on www.diffusionradio.com. No more dish. New budget cuts of $114 million to the Commonwealth Science and Industrial Research Organization, the CSIRO, mean that the radio telescope at Parks and the compact radio array at Narrabri may be closed down within two years. The Parkes Radio Telescope received the first video of the 1969 moon landing and was featured in the film The Dish. 
the telescopes were to be slowly wound down and repurposed as the new square kilometre array comes into action from 2020. There may now be a gap of several years where very few astronomers will be employed in Australia. The telescopes will not be repurposed to other astronomy projects under this budget. Solar is cheaper than coal. Rooftop solar power has become cheaper than coal-fired power, even if the coal were given away free. The price of renting the network of wires and poles is more expensive than the cost of installing solar panels on your house. On a fine sunny day, the presence of so many solar panels on people's roofs meant that more electricity was being produced by coal-burning power plants than was needed. The wholesale price went down, and down, until it was negative. Queensland has around 1,100 megawatts of solar panels on over 350,000 houses. Around Australia, there's 3,300 megawatts on over a million homes. People have been pushed to install storage batteries by power companies that don't want to buy surplus power from solar. As a result, people have plenty of power at night or on cold and cloudy days without drawing anything from the power grid. The profits of Australian coal-fired power companies are way down over the last two years as demand has gone down, and they blame rooftop solar. This is why the generators, retailers and miners want to slow down the rollout of rooftop photovoltaic solar panels. This can be seen not only in their announcements, but in the lobbying to end the emissions trading scheme and the renewable energy target. Giles Parkinson in The Guardian looked at these events and asked the question, if this kept happening and the price of coal-burning power went to zero and stayed there, would coal be cheaper than rooftop solar? His answer is no. And here's why. The network of poles and wires costs 19 cents per kilowatt hour, according to estimates by the Australian Energy Market Commissioner. According to the industry estimates, solar ranges from 12 cents per kilowatt hour to 18 cents per kilowatt hour, depending on the area. So, even at the top of today's prices, solar is cheaper than using free coal on central networked power grids. And of course, coal will never be free, and solar panels will get cheaper. Ironically, the pro-mining people scaremongering about carbon prices have been pushing a lot of the move for people to save on power bills by installing solar panels on their roofs. And for proponents of nuclear power, the message is the same. Nuclear power costs more than solar, even if the uranium was free and the waste wasn't a problem, because the power will always have to travel over the power grid from centralised power generation. Centralised generation of power may not dominate our future. People and businesses will increasingly install ever more powerful rooftop solar and batteries, and the disconnect from the grid. The investment bank UBS predicts this will happen by 2018. CSIRO predicts that by 2040, at least 40% of consumers will have disconnected from the grid. Citizen Solar. The Walkley Award-winning cartoonist for The Guardian, First Dog on the Moon, had this to say. The only reason to dig coal out of the ground now is because you are a jerk. If you really believed in the free market, you would let coal die. But no, you are in the thrall of the big polluters, and history will revile you, history will cast you down as greedy, empty souls. Your children's children will hang their heads in disbelief and shame. The facts and figures and First Dog's cartoon will all be linked on the show web notes. 
The Sydney Mini Maker Fair is coming to the Powerhouse Museum for the weekend of the 16th and 17th of August. The museum has put up a list of groups bringing projects to show. The list includes electric cars, Biohack Sydney, desktop circuit board printers, Toy Death's circuit bending petting zoo, Easy Blue's Bluetooth hacking, Freematic's car telemetry, open source Freetronics, 3D printers, underwater robots, origami, raspberry pies, solar powered racing cars, 3D printed clothing, and lots more. Two days of amazing things you can make. And finally, in a follow-up to last week's story about how the contraceptive pill changes whether women find certain men's smell attractive or not, I have found a paper by researchers who think that smell has nothing to do with it. They looked at the study that showed European-American couples had very different immunity genes to each other. They re-examined the results and methods using the original study's data and say that they found the effect shown in the graphs was weak when you excluded the extreme outlying data and went away when they considered alternative explanations. They repeated the observations using a HapMap database of the genotypes of mother-father-children groups. This allowed them to compare women's actual choice of mate as opposed to her stated choice of mate, what she did rather than what she said. They found that the effect went away. There was no longer a connection between the difference in immunity genes in the major histocompatibility complex in couples, so there was no effect on women's choice in men. They think that because couples with different genes will be more likely to have children than those with similar immunity genes, that only couple with different MHC genes showed up in the list of people. So those couples where women chose men with similar MHC immunity genes probably didn't successfully conceive, and so they were left out of the database because they failed to have children. The researchers conclude that the method selected the difference in MHC genes, not the women's sense of smell. The paper is titled Absence of Evidence for MHC-Dependent Mate Selection Within HapMap Populations and was published in the Public Library of Science, Floss Genetics Journal. The debate continues. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Meow Ludo Meow Meow is the founding member of Biohack Sydney. He's a final year university student with a background in molecular biology. I met Meow in a cafe and began by asking him why he founded a group for biology hobbyists. I founded Biohack Sydney because I saw a movement that was happening around the world called do-it-yourself biology or biohacking. It was people trying to do high-level genetics and molecular biology in their home, away from laboratories, in the same vein that maybe electronics hackers have been 
doing electronics at home with consumer grade electronics like Arduinos and then maybe uh, computer hackers before that in like the 80s taking a non-conventional approach to programming. It's biology for hobbyists. Definitely. A lot of our members of our group are actually biologists for their day jobs and want to do it in a different capacity at the end. So maybe not doing it necessarily to get an outcome, but to tinker a bit and to have fun. Um, maybe not answer questions, but more investigate. So like there's not a traditional thing you might do in a lab. So maybe you can do things like make things glow with no reason, just because you want to do it and because it's fun. To some people that might sound a little bit like mad science in your home lab. Yeah. Is there any government regulation about what you're allowed to do? Most definitely. And that's probably the biggest restriction or biggest barrier to entry is that there, there is quite a lot of rules and legislation. It is difficult to understand that if you don't have a background in molecular biology. So one of the things that Biohacks SID aims to do is to lower that entry level to people who might not be from a biology background by helping them understand the rules and, and um, legislation. There's actually quite a good environment for do-it-yourself biology in Australia. The government is very transparent and wants to work with do-it-yourself biologists to make sure that no one gets in trouble for doing anything wrong or it puts themselves in a situation where they could do something wrong. Um, we keep in regular contact with them and their rules are up on their website and they're pretty straightforward and with the help of a biologist you can kind of sit down and work, nut out where the problems might be and where the safety issues might be there. And is that the Office of Gene Technology Regulation? Yep, that's right. So they're the, one, of the, one of the bodies which look after it. They specifically focus on GMOs, which is the fun stuff. Genetically modified organisms. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the GMO stuff is, is quite fun. It's interesting what classifies a GMO and what doesn't. Because in some sense, we're all genetically modified organisms where our DNA is changing all the time. Every time you have a baby, you're basically playing God and creating a new life form with spinning, you know, a randomizing dice to generate a new organism. So it's, it's interesting what classifies as a GMO and what doesn't. What equipment do you need for a home lab if you're going to be a, a biohacker at home? The barrier to entry with equipment is really low. You could literally, if you were clever, clever, and I'm not the first person to think about this, there was a guy in Ireland, Cathal Garvey, who came up with this method, which is you can do genetic engineering with nothing other than yogurt cultures. So one of the, there's two cultures in yogurt. One of them is Streptococcus thermophilus, I think, and it's, it's termed naturally competent. Competence is the ability of an organism to take up naked DNA from the environment and uh, during the log phase, the early in its, its growth when it's in an exponentially growing phase when you're culturing yogurt, one of the uh, bacteria in there are actually able to take up DNA from the environment. So with nothing more than some DNA that you got synthesized on the internet through a company say like IDT and a culture of yogurt, you could actually be hacking straight away if you wanted to make GMOs. You would be subject to legislation though. So depending on what genes you were putting in there, um, your work might be exempt it might require a higher level of physical containment. And those labs are graded PC1 or PC2. So that's where it gets more expensive if you want a lab with containment to be able to do more of the fun stuff. That's right. So depending on what genes you're putting in there would depend on what, what grade it is. If you're putting a gene that's already inside the organism, it would probably be exempt. It's something that you have to check online. So there's exempt, there's low notifiable dealings, and then there's some higher level notifiable dealings. And the exempt stuff is generally done in PC1 labs or, or lower. We encourage everyone to use a PC1 lab as a minimum, even though, strictly speaking, you wouldn't have to. A PC1 lab just basically says a physical containment level. So 
at a level one, it's kind of a, about the same requirements that you would have in a commercial kitchen, maybe with a few modifications. A PC2 lab is the type of lab you'd be using to work with serious GMOs. They're a lot heavier restricted. The, the Office of Gene Technology Regulator steps in at the PC2 level and they say, okay, now we're going to um, work out whether this lab complies or not. But for PC1 labs, um, any institutional biosafety committee member could approve a lab as PC1 and then they would just notify the Office of Gene Technology Regulator that this lab has been certified PC1, can we have some little stickers? So how do you make sure that what your whatever organism you change doesn't escape the lab? PC1 and PC2 have a lot of guidelines in there to, to make sure that that's, that's happening. As a general rule, most GMO work is actually quite safe because generally the modifications you make cause the organism to become less fit in the environment, so they'll naturally get outcompeted. With PC2 labs, there's a whole heap of protocols like Anything that's grown in the lab never leaves the lab. All the incubators are in the lab. They call it cradle to the grave. So you basically have to think from the very moment of conception of your experiment all the way until it gets autoclaved or chemically sterilized. That would all happen in a sealed set of rooms or events. So with a lot of labs now, they're looking at making PC2 floors where it's not just a lab. It's from the time you hop out of the elevator, you'll go through a door and that entire floor will be PC2 because it makes a lot more sense. It's easier to contain a whole floor than it is to have a whole heap of rooms that are not connected with non-PC2 walkways between them. It's better to just make a PC2 lab. The great thing for do-it-yourself biology is this means that a lot of labs that were PC2 are now being classified as PC1 and new labs are coming about which are PC2 but the government has advised us that we might it might be a good idea for us to contact some of these institutions and see whether the, these unused labs might be available for the community to start hacking. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? So does Biohack Sydney have somewhere for hobbyists to come and hack safely? Not yet. <laughs> we'd love to have... Um, sorry, not yet, but we'd love to have a space which is available for the community in the city. Where At the moment, we are looking at a few different funding options. One of them is similar to a Kickstarter campaign that we hope to be launching. Um, there is also some grants available through the AMP Tomorrow Fund, um, which is looking at creating the future. And we'd be looking at a art-type space somewhere around the CBD that people of all ages can come in and learn and co-create different stuff with us. That's our dream, is to have a lab. We've been around for about two years now, so it's, it's about that time. We really look at mirroring some of the successful do-it-yourself biology spaces that have popped up around the world, no, notably BioCurious, where the glow-in-the-dark plant is being made, and GenSpace New York, which is a very successful do-it-yourself biology open to the community space. And you have regular meetings where people talk about hacking biology and synthetic biology and things like that. Yep, we've just started up again for the year, quite late, but we've changed our format slightly into a, a more lecture followed by questions and then community building at the pub afterwards. We're meeting monthly at the moment at ATP Innovations in the seminar room. So that's the Australia Technology Park at Redfern? That's right, just off Platform 10. It's a bit of a maze to find the place, but once you know where it is, it's, it's not too hard. And our next meeting will be on synthetic biology. Oh yeah, don't try this at home. If you do decide to do it, do it yourself biology at home and you break the law, even if you're not aware that you've done so, you're actually liable for some pretty serious prosecution. So it would be great to either contact the OGTR if you're unsure about what you're doing, or to contact a member of Biohack and we can hopefully refer you on to the, uh, the, the legislation that might, you might be covered by or fall underneath. 
because people need to be aware that not only might they be committing criminal acts if they don't obey the law, but they might be suspected of worse things like terrorism. Most definitely. Even ordering certain chemicals or certain primers might raise flags and you might be notified. If you've already spoken to the government, though, you've covered yourself so that you're not going to get your door kicked down by the bioterrorism police or anything like that. Meow, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks very much, Ian. That was Meow Ludo Meow Meow, founding member of Biohack Sydney, who meet at the Australia Technology Park in Redfern. You can find out more on their Facebook page, Biohack Sid. And you can find out about the laws governing biohacking at the Office of Genetic Regulation. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Sam Bruce is an artist and musician who lives in Sydney, mostly working with handmade electronics and code. He makes music in the guises of black math and knife crimes. He and Frances Barrett gave a presentation at Dorkbot where she spelt a manifesto in semaphore flags that were read by a connect-enabled computer to make music. I spoke with Sam on the road outside the pub after Dorkbot. You can hear some road noises in the background. I was presenting a project that I worked on with Fran Barrett called Flagging, and there was a performance for a program at Performance Space earlier in the year called Day for Night, and the system that we devised for that performance was one where a computer was set up to read semaphore signals that were made by Fran, interpreting those via the the Kinect, and then using them to trigger musical phrases in a composition that I'd also prepared for the performance. How did you program the Kinect? So the software that I programmed to work with the Kinect was done using a language called Processing, which is an open source tool. It's development environment and a set of libraries and also quite a large uh, range of user contributed libraries which included one called Simple OpenNI which is a library for communicating with the Connect. and using that I was able to pull out the user recognition data from the Connect. There's a lot of software embedded in the Connect that's set up to, to recognize the user in front of it and, and sort of break them down into like a skeleton sort of shape and figure out where their arms and legs and things are. And so using those simple OpenNI libraries for processing, I was able to get that data about the positions of, of Fran's arms in this case and use that to interpret the semaphore signals. So it was able to pick out exactly where her right arm and her left arm were and what angle they were at and therefore what semaphore letter she was spelling out. Yeah, that's correct. So 
using the the uh, angles of the left and right arms, then had the software just sort of checking those against a table to figure out which letter of the alphabet was, was being signalled. And then that triggered sounds. Yeah, that's right. So the other half of the system was written in a software called Pure Data, which again is a piece of open source software uh, that's mostly used for musical composition or for audio processing and in this case the semaphore signals each letter triggered a different phrase in in the musical composition or or a different sample is the performance online anywhere i uh, will have to check that for you i know that the performance was documented for performance space but i'm not sure if that documentation's uh, available online as yet so maybe that's something I can find out for you. Yeah, I mean, I do a variety of art and music things. The project I'm most focused on at the moment is a act called Knife Crimes, which is hacked and bent shambolic electronic music. And so uh, that's one where I'm working with a variety of either um, hacked, bent, uh, circuit bent sound toys or other little DIY synth kits that are triggered with USB MIDI signals so that I can program music on the computer and have have all these uh, modules uh, triggered from there. And yeah, it's kind of, um, it's a a bit of a a mess, but I I enjoy it a great deal. And um, some some of that uh, music is online at uh, cryptdesignersguild.com or on my own website at samuelbruce.net. Well, Samuel Bruce, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Ian. That was Sam Bruce, electronic artist and musician, talking about the work Flagging that he co-created with Francis Barrett. You can find his work online at cryptdesignersguild.com and samuelbruce.net. Francis Barrett's work can be found at francisbarrett.com. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for videos and links about this week's show. If you like what I do and you'd like to support the show, please donate what you can, if you can, by clicking on the donate button on www.diffusionradio.com. And a big thank you this week to Rob from Ballarat for his donation. I also have audibletrial.com slash science and Amazon affiliate links, if you'd rather contribute by buying stuff that pays me for the link you use. I'm Ian Wolfe. 
Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that our high and low tides are caused by the gravitational pull of the moon. It's been proven to be true, like one and one are two. It's checked and double-checked, a fact that can be backed. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that there are belts of radiation in outer space, which are a hazard for future space flyers to overcome. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. Well, of course, even scientific facts are not perfectly exact, but they are as exact as it is humanly possible to make them at the time. It's a scientific fact, a scientific fact. It has to be correct, it has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact.